scripture to sing about the necessity of Christ's blood is both a great comfort and also a sobering fact. Father, the fact that that we even gathered here in your name tonight and me getting ready to preach your word, were it not for the blood of Christ, it would be a massive sin to do all these things. For me to take upon my lips your eternal word and try to preach it in a way which is both glorifying to your name and beneficial to our souls is would be a, would be a massive disobedience. But because of the blood of Christ, we are welcomed, we are invited, we are we are in fact commanded to draw near. And so we thank you. We grieve that our sin necessitated his death, but we rejoice that he was willing to do it for us. And so may those may that mingle and linger with us that that truth Humble us and thrill us all at the same time as your gospel is intended to do. And we ask that you'll bless this time for the glory of your name tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 29? Genesis 29. And I'm going to begin by reading verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Genesis 29, beginning at verse 15, where we read the familiar account of Jacob and his marriage to to Leah and then to Rachel and the whole incident in his life. Genesis 29, beginning at verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so, and he completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. 
She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, the following. Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you. But they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may have been a very interesting job to some people, I guess. But something has evaded us. What C.S. Lewis is getting at is, These longings that we have, these desires for marriage or vacation or job, they're there. They're real. But when we get them, somehow what we dream they would be doesn't deliver. Why is that? Well, Ernest Becker, another writer, wrote the following, specifically looking at why marriage doesn't deliver when we try to put more into it than maybe God intended, meaning looking for um, something in the human relationship that can only be found in our relationship with the Lord. No human relationship, Ernest Becker writes, can bear the burden of Godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize the love partner, they inevitably reflect earthly decay and imperfection. And as he is our ideal measure of value, that is the speaking from the woman to the man, as that person is our ideal measure of value, this imperfection falls back upon us. If your partner is your quote-unquote all, then any shortcoming in them becomes a major threat to you. Well, Proverbs 19.22 states the following, What a man desires is unfailing love. What a man desires, what a man wants, is unfailing love. We all long for someone to love us and someone from which we receive love. And that is as God intended intended it, both in the human relationships of marriage and family and friendship and the family of Christ in the church. That's wonderful. I'm not discounting that at all. But it's also true in the vertical relationship. What a man desires is unfailing love. I mean, turn on the radio 
and you will hear it in almost any song of any genre of music. Whether it's country or rock or hip-hop or whatever, most of the songs are about this, desiring love, or at least what's to be accompanied with love. Turn on the TV, and you'll see it in television shows and movies. I mean, look at it in the bookstores, and you'll see it in the bestseller sections. You'll see whole sections of the bookstore devoted to romance and love and finding the soulmate. And if you look in the Bible, you'll see it confirmed as well, that what a man desires is unfailing love. And we see that in both Jacob and Leah in this account in Genesis chapter 29. I want us to look at this passage, and I'm going to kind of tell the story and make applications as we go along. But here are the three general headings that I want us to consider tonight from this story. The first is Jacob's pursuit of Rachel. I want us to look at that and what's going on in Jacob's life and what his desires are. And then I want to look at Leah's pursuit of Jacob and what's going on in her heart and life. And then I want to look finally at God's pursuit of us. Okay? So Jacob's pursuit of Rachel, Leah's pursuit of Jacob, and then God's pursuit of us. First of all, let's look at Jacob's pursuit of Rachel. This is in verses 15 through 30. I'm not going to read them again. I've already read them for you. So I'm going to summarize them and make application as we go along. Now let's step back here and get some of the context and get some of the background in Jacob's life since we're kind of jumping in midstream here. We haven't been preaching on Jacob and haven't been thinking about his life. So let me just bring us up to speed where we are in Genesis chapter 29. Remember, we'll go all the way back to the beginning very quickly. God creates the world. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. They are to rule over God's place for God's glory and the good of the world and spread God's glory throughout the earth. They fail. Genesis 3. The fall comes in. The curse comes in. As a result, human relationships are fractured. The vertical relationship with God is fractured. Creation's messed up. Things don't go like they should. Genesis 4, we've got murder. Genesis 6 through 9, we've got the flood. I mean, this is scary. Right at the outset of the Bible, good creation, gone bad, judgment coming. People are treating everybody evil. Things are not the way God planned them. And not the way he had created them to be. Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. God confuses the languages, disperses the people. Genesis 12, God picks a man and says, I'm going to save the world through your family. I'm going to make all this right. I'm going to send one into the world who is going to be one of your, one of your sons. And I'm going to save the world through him. In every generation, Abraham... One child of yours is going to be the bearer of the messianic seed. And in chapter 25 and 27, Jacob becomes that one. Now, Abraham is Jacob's grandfather. His father, Isaac, was born from Abraham and Sarah, miraculously. And then Jacob is one of Isaac's and Rebekah's two children, twins, Esau and Jacob. But Jacob is the one who is chosen ahead of Esau, even though Esau is the firstborn. And we know from Genesis chapter 25 and 27 that Isaac preferred Esau and Jacob grew up shunned and rejected. He grew up playing second fiddle to his brother. 
Jacob later deceives his father to give him the deathbed blessing of the firstborn. Remember, he puts the hair on his body and deceives at that time the blind Isaac into blessing him. And he receives the blessing that should have belonged to Esau. Well, that doesn't sit too well with Esau because he vows to kill him. And he has to run far away just to survive. So he runs to his mother's side of the family, to his uncle Laban. And that's where we pick up the story. I mean, Jacob has not had the easiest of lives. (laughs) He has grown up in a home where he's felt rejected and shunned. He's become a deceiver, and now he's a fugitive from his own family, on the run from his brother. And he takes refuge in his uncle named Laban. Now, Laban, we pick up at verse 15, knows that he's in his family. You know, he recognizes Jacob. He says, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? I mean, Laban's a businessman. He's a shepherd. He's, he's, he's got his flocks, and, he's, and he recognizes in Jacob the potential to make a lot of money off this boy. Bring him on as a hired hand. Work with him in the family business. And he could use him to make, make money. He knows what Jacob's capable of. So, even though Jacob is running and penniless, he is arranging a working relationship with his uncle Laban. So how is Jacob going to deal with this issue in his life right now? This profound sense of disillusionment, this profound sense of lostness, this profound sense I've been rejected by my family. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I'm trying to find somebody who will take me in for a little while. How's he going to deal with this, with this sort of hopelessness that he's experiencing? Well, he wants Rachel. He wants Rachel. Rachel is the youngest daughter, at least of what we know. Laban, in verse 16, has two daughters, and Rachel is the youngest, and she is good-looking. She's sexually attractive, and Jacob is willing to work seven years to get her. Now, Jacob is out of his brain right now. He just vowed to his Uncle Laban that he's going to work seven years to get this girl. Now, just so you know, in this culture of this time, 30 to 40 shekels was the normal bride price for a for a bride, for a husband to propose to the family, offer um, wanted to marry one of the daughters, and the, the man would give the bride price. And it was normally 30 to 40 shekels. Now, one and a half shekels is the normal wage for a laborer. So, I mean, it's, a, it's a quite a bit for the bride price. But what he is offering is an enormous sum of money, some three to four times the normal bride price. I mean, he is smitten. He is ready. He sees Rachel, and he, he throws in, he looks at her and says, she's worth seven years of my life. I mean, that's a guy who's looking to fill something that's pretty empty right now in his life. And he looks at Rachel, and he's like, there she is. I'll work seven years for her. Now, Laban hears that as a smart businessman. He hears it, and he knows this guy's desperate. This guy is desperate, and I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm going to take advantage of that because what does he say? Notice verse 19. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you 
than that I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. That's not a yes. You can marry her. That's a, it's a good idea that you, would, you should want to marry her. But Jacob hears that as, yes, he said yes, so let's get to work. But that's not what Laban said. Deceiving the deceiver is what we see Laban doing. Jacob has met his match of deception in his uncle. Now, you notice in verse 20 just how intense this longing is in Jacob. It says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I mean, this guy's goal for seven years is her. That's it. That's what he's thinking about. That's what he's planning on. That's what he's working for. Her, 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 love her, love her, want her. And you notice in verse 21 what he says to Laban as soon as that seven years up. Give me my wife that I may lie with her or go into her for my time is completed. Now, if, if, I, could, if I could read you the Hebrew, you would blush. Because what he says is, give her to me. I want to have sex with her so bad, please. He is ready to be intimate with Rachel. He has loved her. He has desired her. He has wanted her. And now he has her. So he thinks. Now, why is he like this? Why is he so out of his mind? We would call him obsessive. We would say, man, you need to chill out a little bit. This is how Tim Keller, who was very helpful to me in preparing the sermon He makes this comment, which I think is insightful. He sees this as how Jacob is dealing with his failure and with his emptiness and with his sense of hopelessness and lostness. I mean, he's lost his mother. He's lost his father. His his brother's red hot after him. And he looks at Rachel and he sees someone that he can love and be loved by and make his life complete. This is going to fix his life. This is going to fill his hole. If I can find that person and my life will be okay. But what does this pursuit ultimately amount to? Well, it amounts to frustration, doesn't it? Now, Laban, as we as I already explained, kind of deceived Jacob. Well, at least with his promise, he deceived him by saying, okay, it's better for that I give her to you, and at least I know what you're like, than to give her to some other man, so stay with me. But he doesn't ever say yes. And then his plot unfolds in verse 22. Laban gathers together, gathers the people together of the place, and he makes a big feast, which is what happens when there's a wedding. All right? Lots of food, lots of drinking. Jacob's drunk. And he sends, of course, Leah would have been, or Rachel, Rachel or Leah would have been wearing a veil. So Jacob would not have recognized her, and being inebriated wouldn't have helped either. And so he sends Leah into the tent, and then sends a drunk Jacob into the tent. And Jacob thinks, finally, finally, I've got my woman. And he wakes up in the morning, and the text says, behold, it was Leah. After the seven years of up are up, he marries Leah and wakes up in the morning to find her next to him. And he's infuriated. And he goes to his uncle Laban and says, why'd you do this? And Laban says, 
It's not so in our country that we do things like this. We don't give the younger first. We always give the older. But doesn't it strike you a little bit that Jacob just seems to go along with that? I mean, wouldn't you have, like, at that point, like, probably picked up some sort of farm tool (laughs) and wanted to go after your uncle who just deceived you for seven years? And what's interesting is what Laban says to Jacob. He says, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. In verse 25, it says, did I not serve with you for Rachel? This is Jacob. Why then have you deceived me? That word for deceit is the same word that's used in the account with Isaac of what Jacob did to him. And you can imagine that as, that as those words left the lips of Jacob, why, why, have you, why, like, why have you deceived me? And as he heard that, can you not just imagine a knife going into his own soul and saying, I am getting exactly what I did to my father? My uncle is giving to me what I did to my father. And so he's humbled, no doubt. He remembers his past. He says, I'm doing what I did to my father. He reached out in the dark, thinking he was touching Esau. I reached out in the dark, thinking I was touching Rachel. But I wasn't. And my dad wasn't either. I've got what's coming to me. And his life is shattered. He's, he's going to work another seven years for Leah. Now, let me just make a brief application at this point before we look at Leah. All that Jacob is banking on is Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. And when he thinks he has her, he wakes up in the morning And behold, it's Leah. That is the way sin works. Or that is the way any good thing works, like love, when we try to put into it something that only God can give. To put all of our hope and all of our trust and to say, like like Ernest Becker says, to, to, to have any human relationship bear the weight of Godhood, which is what Rachel is functioning as in Jacob's life right now, is to shatter And to be frustrated with that relationship. This is what we might call the liberal disillusionment. By liberal meaning the person like the prodigal son who runs out, goes after something, works diligently to have as much pleasure as he possibly can, and then wakes up in the morning and behold, it's Leah. Some of you have lived that life. You've gone out with Rachel. Or you've had a Rachel kind of night, and you woke up in the morning, and behold, it was Leah. It wasn't what you thought at all. So that's Jacob's pursuit of Rachel. Now let's look at Leah's pursuit of Jacob. They're married now. The marriage has been consummated. Jacob knows it. Laban knows it. And Leah knows it. And we pick up at verse 30.
actually verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, this isn't the first thing that we're told about Leah. Back in verse 17, if you'll flip back there at the very beginning of the chapter, we see a description of what Leah's like. It says that Leah's eyes were weak or soft. The word literally means fragile. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, this this is not an easy word to translate. It's not easily understandable. She had weak eyes, but Rachel was beautiful. Now, what does this mean? It can, it can be confusing. Like I said, it means fragile, but it's really clear that what the writer's saying here is not Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel, she could see a long distance. She could see a long way off, but, you know, she was nearsighted. She needed glasses. That's not what's being said here because the contrast is Rachel being beautiful and Leah being weak. It could be some have some have purported that it could have mean that she she was she was cross-eyed. She was not beautiful, she was not attractive, she's very homely, quite unattractive compared to Rachel. She's not good to look at. And think about if you're Leah. I feel for Leah so much. She grew up in the shadow of her stunning sister, America's next top model, right there. Every day of her life, she's been ignored for years and years and years. I mean, imagine this. Laban knew, her own father knew that he had to trick somebody into marrying her. I mean, imagine if you're Leah, how would you feel? I mean, Laban sits down with her and says, look, Leah, this is the only way it's going to happen. I've got to get a guy drunk to get, you, to get you married. I mean, Leah's like, great, thanks, Dad, for the moral support. <laughs> I mean, it's sad. It's tragic. What Jacob doesn't really realize is Leah's his soulmate. Jacob grew up shunned, rejected, deceived, in the shadow of a greater sibling. But how does Leah handle her brokenness from her years of rejection? Well, she has children. She has sons. Which she is... What every Hebrew man would have desired from his wife. Son after son after son. No, no daughters. Sons. She is giving her husband sons. And every time she has a son, she chooses a Hebrew word for the name that expresses her longing for Jacob. To love her. To be interested in her. Her first son, Reuben, comes from the word to see, saying, now maybe my husband will actually look at me. Instead of just looking through me to Rachel, he'll actually look at me and pay attention to me. Doesn't happen. Her next son comes along, Simeon, which comes from to hear, saying, maybe now, maybe now he'll listen to me. Instead of just saying, yeah, Leah, yeah. 
Leah, Leah, can we talk later, Leah? And then she has a third son, Levi, which comes from the word to attach, saying, now maybe he'll love me. Maybe now he'll be my covenant partner. He'll cleave to me like marriage is supposed to be. Back in Genesis 2, man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Maybe that's what will happen. So she's handling her brokenness the same way that Jacob is handling his, just in a different way. But at root, it's the same thing. She's just the more conservative version. She's looking to a person to fulfill her. She's looking for Jacob. Oh, if I had the love of Jacob, just like Jacob says, oh, if I had the love of Rachel, things would be all right. Leah's saying, oh, if I had the love of Jacob, things would be all right. And it's not happening. But really, we've got four people in this story, and they're all pursuing different idols. They're all pursuing different God substitutes that they think are going to bring about true happiness and fulfillment, aren't they? I mean, what's Laban after? Money, power, control. Those are his idols. Big time. He's after money. He wants to control situations and manipulate circumstances and make things work out all right so he can get his daughters married. That's his idol. He doesn't trust the Lord. He deceives his nephew. He treats his daughter like trash. That's his God. Money, control, power. What's Rachel's God? Beauty. Popularity. People love me. Look at me. I'm Rachel. Rachel. I mean, that's her. People like me. They, they, they. They want me. They desire me. I mean, you don't think Jake, you don't think she got a kick out of looking out of the window and seeing Jacob plowing that field so hard? Boy, girls, come over here. Girls, come, come, look, come, come here. Get all the girls together. You see that? He's working seven years for me. Seven. Yeah, you heard that right. Yeah, 30 to 40 shekels for you. Yes, yeah, seven years. How about that? I mean, she used that. Her other girls were like, well, excuse me, Miss Thang. <laughs> but, I mean, that's her, that's, those are her idols. And then Leah, what's her idol? Family is her idol. Children and a husband that loves me. That's where I'm putting my hope and trust. If I had that, I will be secure and I will have everything that I ever longed for. It's the American dream. It's the Hebrew dream. Unfulfilled, frustrating. What's Jacob? Pleasure, man. He's after it. He sees Rachel and he's like, yep, one night with her, my life's complete. And that's what he's after. These are the gods of our age, people. Brothers and sisters, this is America. This is not some ancient text that's irrelevant. I mean, the gods of our country, the gods of our city, money, control, power, beauty, Pleasure, family, and the, the text is saying, okay, if you want to put all your eggs in that basket, if you want to put all your hope there, prepare to lead a, lead a life of frustration and disappointment. If that's where, now, is family good? Yes. Amen. Praise God for family. Is pleasure good? Yes. Amen. Praise God for pleasure. Is money good? Yes. Wonderful. Are all these things necessarily bad in and of themselves? No. But these good things have been made into ultimate things, and that's a bad thing. 
When good things get made into God things, that's bad thing. And that's what's going on right here. Good things are being made into God things. Now, the wonderful, here's the wonderful thing, is that God's writing a story of redemption through all this mess. God is writing a story of redemption through all this mess. I've titled this sermon, The Pursuit of Love, and I did it for two reasons. Number one, we see Jacob going after it and Leah going after it. But there's another person in this story who's going after love as well, though not for the reasons that Jacob and Leah are. God loves his world, and he has a plan to redeem it through people like this. So that's my la- this is my last point, God's pursuit of us. Now, where's the hope? Where's the hope? I've just told you that all the things that we, that we bank on, that we look to, that we try to find our significance and identity in, lead to frustration. What a man desires is unfailing love. Can that longing ever be met? Yes, man's quest for unfailing love can be satisfied. And we see it by looking at what God, what God does in Leah and what God does through Leah. What God does in Leah first and what God does through Leah. I left a son off. I left her fourth son off, Judah. Would you look again at verse 35? And she conceived again, this is her fourth time, and bore another son and said, now these first two words are very important, this time, this time, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called him Judah. And then she ceased bearing. Now, what's the significance of those two words, this time? Here's what I think. Her husband, Jacob, has been her functional savior. He has been the one to whom she has looked to get her identity and purpose and significance and meaning, and she's met with nothing but rejection. He's despised her. So how does she solve it? Keep giving him more kids. Give him more sons. Finally, he's going to look at me and say, Wow, wife, four sons. I love you. She gets none of it. After three of them, she gets none of it. And then the fourth child comes along, she names him Judah, and she says, this time it's going to be different. This time I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to direct my focus vertically instead of horizontally. I'm not going to look to him. I'm going to look to the Lord. I don't need more children. I don't need Jacob to love me, to accept me, in order to love him, in order to live with him. Now I will transfer my hope and trust from my husband to the Lord. Laban and Jacob have stolen my life, but now I will take it back. I will transfer my hope to the Lord. And once she does that, she's free. She's free. She's been held in bondage by her other saviors. By her father, who's treated her like garbage, and by her husband, who's done the exact same. And now she says, I look to the Lord. This is the grace of God coming into Leah's life. 
God shows up in verse 35 by performing a work in Leah's heart that causes her to no longer look to things or to people to get her identity, but from God. And she receives this child as a gift from God. She praises the Lord. And there's no mention of anything about her husband anymore, about what Jacob will maybe be for her now. She ceases with, this time I will praise the Lord. And that's what God does and has done in you if you're his child tonight. You have spent your life for whatever period of time, and you are still tempted to give yourself to any one of your formal, former idols or the new ones that come along. Money, power, control, beauty, success. Find it in my job. Find my identity in my family. Find it in being a good church person rather than in the Lord. And what happens at conversion is we, we cease trying to find our identity in the things that the world offers to us, and we start to find it in Christ. He is my life now. He is the one that I orbit around. He is the one whose love for me never fails. He is the one who is consistent and whose approval will never go up and down because of his work for me on the cross. That's what happens. We see in the gospel 100% guaranteed what idols cannot 100% guarantee. And we yield ourselves to Jesus. And that's what has happened in Leah's life. And that's where our story comes in. But this is not the end yet. Because she called his name Judah. Now, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1? And we'll pick up the story. The Bible is one story unfolding over time. And we're going to read the first two verses. Before I read the first two verses, let me make this one comment. What is God doing for her when Judah is born? When Judah is born. Well, in Genesis 48, a prophecy comes, a prophet is, is, a prophecy is spoken that Judah is the one through whom the Messiah will come. Judah is the one. Judah is the seed of Jacob. The one that God will choose. Just like Jacob was chosen instead of Esau. Just like Isaac was chosen instead of Ishmael. And just like Abraham was chosen, this is the one in Abraham's family line through whom I will bring Jesus Christ, the true Savior. And in Genesis 48, it's promised. God looks at the unlovely one, Leah, and he chooses the unlovely one, and he lets Rachel go. He passes over Rachel. He passes over America's Next Top Model. Passes her over and goes to Leah. And chooses Leah and says that she's going to be the mother of Jesus. That's, that, that to me is a better endorsement of your life. I mean, what do you think? In the grand scheme of things, you think Leah's regretting it now? In the big picture, Leah's pretty bummed about it, huh? That she was born not looking so hot. 
Mother of the Messiah? I'll take it. <laughs> no, I won't. I can't. But <laughs> don't have the anatomy to do that. And it's already happened. But God is attracted to the people that the world is not attracted to. That get no love. God loves those people. He defends those people. You are those people. He loves the weak. He loves the what the world doesn't want to be like. If no one wants to be Leah's spouse, fine, I'll be her spouse, God says. I'm not ashamed of Leah. Salvation came into the world through Leah and her boy. And we read that in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah. There it is. And Leah's right in between those names. There's no Judah without Leah. The gospel saves people who are not strong. God takes two broken people, messed up, Jacob and Leah, and he ties them into the line of Jesus Christ. They're both pursuing different saviors. They're both wrecked with sin, just like their grandfather Abraham was, that pagan idolater. And God writes them into the story of Jesus because that's what Jesus gets too. Jesus is the one who nobody looks at and thinks thinks is too attractive either. What's this guy? He's a Galilean carpenter. Isn't that Joseph's son? I mean, who's he? And who's that ragtag bunch of fishermen he's running with? He's certainly not a religious person like we are. What's this miracle? What's this? What's this? No, no, no. This is not God's king. No, no, no. Will somebody please stop the press on this guy? Please. I mean, this is ridiculous. God doesn't send his king into the world like this. This is not the Messiah. Bring him before the court. Are you the Messiah? Are you? I mean, really, look at you. Homely. Where do you live? Oh, you don't have an address, do you? God's king, huh? You got to be kidding me. Will somebody crucify this guy, please? And lo and behold, salvation comes to the world. Because this is how God does it. God takes what is unlovely. And he saves the world. And all those who are willing to identify with Jesus, have their sins forgiven by his work, have his righteousness given to them, and are accepted into the family of God's nobodies. And it's a wonderful family to be a part of. So how can we respond? This is is what I'm going to close with. How can we respond to all of our disillusionment? There are four things that we can do. And only one of them is the right one. Number four, number one, if you're disillusioned tonight, 
Maybe you are a, you're, a, you're not a believer yet, you're not, or you think you're a Christian, but you, you're not sure. Or you are a Christian who's struggling with some particular sin pattern in your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's money. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's something, uh, something other than Jesus Christ is ravishing your time and your attention and your concern. And everybody around you knows it's not Jesus that you're really excited about. It's something else. And you're beginning to grow disillusioned with that. You're starting to see, you know what? This is not paying off the way I thought it would. This is not meeting me where I thought it would. I mean, this whole job thing's not coming back the way I thought it would. I thought this was going to be my salvation. It isn't. This relationship, this job, this opportunity, this particular activity, whatever. And it's, it's not, 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 not scratching where I'm itching at all. So, so what are we going to do about that? There are four things. Number one, you can look down. Which means blame the things. Blame it. Just blame, blame what you're doing. That, that's my problem is that, man, I just I got to find some new things to be involved in. It's these things that are the problem. It's this relationship. I need to find a new one. It's this. That's, that's the issue. It's this, it's this person. I need to get a new marriage. It's this person that's the problem. You can look down. That's not the way to do it. Or you can look in. I'm the problem. That's partially right. (laughs) I'm the problem. And then you just become a self-defeated self-hater. It's me. It's always me. I mess up everything. That's just another form of pride. Self-pity. Just pride in reverse. But it's always me. I'm the problem. I mess everything up. Anything I get involved in, I just screw up. Mess up. No. Don't do that. I look down. Don't look in, or you can look out and just get real cynical and hateful and blame the world. These are the fun people to be around. Glasses half empty every all the time. It's the way the world goes, man. Just do your own thing. Forget about it. Who cares about them? I mean, it's just get real cynical, get real bitter, get real cold, be real sarcastic all the time. I know people like this, eaten up with sarcasm and bitterness. Mad at the world, blaming the world for everything. That's not the right answer. Don't look down, don't look in, don't look out. Look up. Look up. Look to this story, what God has revealed, the story he is writing, and say, you know what? I'm going to jump out of my story, and I'm getting into God's story. And when you get into God's story, you find your story. You find your story. You get written in that Matthew 1 in union with Jesus Christ. And so that's why C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which nothing on this earth can possibly satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's the most reasonable thing. I mean, if all these pursuits are not a mountain to anything, the most probable explanation is you weren't made for those things. You're made for God. And that's what I pray we'll find more and more and more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, which is, which is so rich and teaches us so much. Thank you that you write your great story of redemption through the, the most broken situations. I pray that you would um, write many stories of redemption through all the brokenness that's in our lives and in our families, in our workplaces, in our community, so many broken places. And we ask that you would come and write marvelous stories of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.